Jesus started his ministry in parables. He started his ministry healing people and then telling them not to say anything about it. He started his ministry in obscurity. When Jesus started his ministry, his cousin, John the Baptist, had a far greater following than he had himself. Jesus was hesitant, it seems, as you read the gospel accounts of his life and ministry, to come right out and say who he was. It's like he was seeding in the ground who he was before he made the harvest explode with revelation and clarity. But in John chapter 7, for the first time, he comes right out and he tells the people that he's teaching who he is. He comes right out and tells them that he is God and that he is one with the Father and that he has come to save them. He's come to deliver them. And in response to him reaching for them with the truth of who he was, they rejected him and they started an argument. And this is happening during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so during that seven days, this argument escalates day after day after day. They bring up the law. Jesus said, I support the law of Moses. I'm not coming in contradiction to the law of Moses. I am the natural outgrowth. I am the next developmental step in what God has been doing since the time of Moses. And the argument continued to escalate. There is no argument like a religious argument. And it escalates through, through the week. And John 7, 37 says, on the last day of the feast, Jesus got fed up and he started crying out with a loud voice. Okay. You know, as an argument kind of escalates, so does the volume. It kind of escalates. And, and Jesus is standing there full of passion, full of love, full of truth, trying to get people who he loves to see the truth that he's saying. And there's nothing more frustrating than trying to get the people you love to receive a truth that you're saying when they're being hard-headed and they don't want to see it. And they, they have this, they have this um, tradition that the Jews have been performing for thousands of years during the Feast of Tabernacles, where on the last day of the feast, they fill up a large pitcher of water and they pour it out on the ground to symbolize them saying, God, our lives are poured out like water. We're thirsty in a, in a dry and barren land. We need you to quench us. We need you to fill us. We need you to save us. And so they, they pour the water out on the last day of the feast. So Jesus is watching them pour the water out and, you know, go through the motions of this tradition, go through the prayer, God, we're poured out like water on the ground. We need you to fill us. We need you to send the water. And Jesus cries out with a loud voice and he says, if any one of you thirsts, come to me. You know, if you're poured out and you're parched and your soul is dry and you're in desperate need of something, I'm standing like right here. And when he did that, when he said that after the water was poured out, some of them believed, the text says, but then some of them got so angry they tried to go physically grab him and remove him from the temple courts. That's how intense the argument got. 
which makes John chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, which was the next morning, so amazing to me. Because Jesus has spent a solid week revealing himself, making an appeal to their heart, showing them openly who he is. I'm the thing that you need of. You're, you're beating your chest and you're pouring out water saying, God, we're so desperate. And the answer is right in front of you. How long will you reject the help that's been sent to you, continuing to search in all of the wrong places? I'm, I'm what you need. And, and they, they got so angry with him, they ran him out of the temple. So then John chapter 8, verse 1 Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives, and the scripture says, verse 2, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now that blows my head off, that, that he would continually give them the best information he has the best presentation he has, that he would give them his passion, give them his love, make an appeal. They would reject it, and the next morning, he comes back again. I'm thankful for a God who has stubborn love. <laughs> when you don't get it the first time, or the second, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth, or the sixth, or the seventh, he keeps coming back. It's, it's like a, a weaker God would just get frustrated, turn his back, and say, I tried to give it to you, I showed it to you, I told it to you, I explained it to you, I showed up, I revealed it to you, you didn't get it, I'm, I'm done with you. But he keeps coming back again. Again, that's why I'm saved this morning, because he kept coming back again. That's why some of you are saved this morning, because God kept coming back again. Didn't get it in your teens, didn't get it in your 20s, didn't get it in your 30s, but he kept coming back again. A stubborn God, a stubborn lover of our soul, a stubborn, persistent love. And it also, it's beautiful when you put it in the context of your life and receiving salvation, but it's also something you can learn and take as a lesson with you because God is love. And if you love anybody and the love is going to last, you have to love with stubbornness. You got to love your spouse with a stubborn love. Uh, just look straight at me. This is going to be all right. When you, when you try to make an appeal to them, when you show them a, a truth, something that's important, something that's real, and they just don't want to see it, and the argument escalates and escalates and escalates, come back in the morning and try again. Okay. That's stubborn love. A love that refuses to get frustrated and throw in the towel. A love that just keeps coming back again with your children. You explain clear blue sky reality to them. And they just look at you and they don't receive it. Don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. In the morning, sit down and try again. We, we have... We have too many people trying to love in, in the hour that we're living in, in the day that we're living in. We have too many people trying to love, and, and they've never developed any stubbornness 
to their love. Okay. So, so we love somebody, and if they reject us, or if they put up a wall, or if they do anything, we like to try to take our love back and move on and maybe throw it on somebody else, not realizing in a couple of months or a couple of years they'll do the same thing. You'll never make any kind of love relationship last if you don't develop stubborn love. Look at somebody, smile at them, and say, you need stubborn love. Stubborn love. Stubborn love. So he comes back. He comes back after being wrung out emotionally. You know, because when you really present everything you've got to someone, that's what the text was trying to, to tell you. Is it's not like Jesus was there like, like preaching a message and screaming with a loud voice. He was screaming with a loud voice because he was pouring out everything trying to make an appeal to him. He was giving them all he had. And, and they, did, they didn't want it. They rejected it. And there's no feeling like the feeling of giving somebody everything you've got. Just pouring out everything you have and them, nah, you know, them rejecting, them rejecting it. And so he comes again, you know, Heart in hands, almost like saying, here, put my heart in a blender again. Here, let's, let's go through this again. And he, he sits down to teach, to make another, yet another appeal to them. And this time, while he's teaching, while he's teaching, like, it would be like this happening right now while I'm teaching. Okay. While he's teaching, the Pharisees bring in a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now, that's quite a disruption. It would be a disruption this morning. And we're a lot more, you know, easygoing in 2021, 2022 than they were back then. It would be a disruption if a, if a woman came up in here wrapped up in a sheet being drugged by several men down the aisle and they said, we just caught her in the act of adultery. It would take your attention away from what I'm saying. I promise you. And, and no teacher of any class, whether it's religious or, or secular, anyone giving a lecture or anyone giving a speech or anyone giving a talk, the art of communication is you have to hold people's attention because it doesn't matter how good or how true what you're saying is if your audience isn't listening to you. So they come in and their malicious intent is very strategic. Number one, they want to distract the crowd from hearing what he's saying. The enemy's ministry is distraction. Okay. The, the, the thing the enemy will attack you with most, I, I know people think they, their minds go instantly to disease or they go to, you know, the enemy telling lies about you or the enemy, you know, doing this or that. The thing you'll be attacked with the most by the enemy is distraction. 
when God is doing something pivotal in your life, when moments are important, when you need to be present, when you need to hear something, when you need to discern something, when something needs to be revealed to you, when you desperately need direction, the enemy is a master at sending distraction. And so they bring this woman in with the intent to distract the crowd. And they cause a major disruption. But what they don't realize is Jesus is no ordinary teacher. To any other teacher, this would have thrown them off. You know, I would have dismissed the service. Y'all come back next Sunday. Love you. Praying for you. We'll have security deal with this and we'll see y'all next week. But, but, but what they don't realize about Jesus is Jesus is not just teacher. He's not just rabbi. Jesus is God. And one of God's characteristics is God looks for the disruptions and interruptions in our lives. Because God's glory looks its greatest in the middle of the disruptions and interruptions in our lives. If you're looking for God's power, don't look in the peaceful and tranquil times of your life. Look for God's power when all hell is breaking loose in your life. In fact, God needs disruptions in order to reveal who he is. Because he cannot reveal to the earth that he is the peace speaker unless he's got a storm threatening to drown his disciples. He cannot reveal that he is a healer unless he's got 10 lepers standing in front of him. He cannot reveal that he is the God that brings the dead back to life unless his friend Lazarus dies and has been in the grave for four days. God looks for the inconvenient interruptions and the disruptions of life to reveal who he is. So if you're going through a major disruption in your life this morning, it's a good thing, not a bad thing, because the disruptions and interruptions of your life create a canvas for God to paint his masterpiece on. And his masterpiece is always who he is in your situation, who he is in your disruption. That's why the, the prophet wrote this. And you don't you don't realize the beauty of this until you've gone through it. But the prophet wrote this thing in the Old Testament. He said he is beautiful for situations. <laughs> that, that, that he'd gone through enough situations in his life. I mean, anybody know what it's like to go through a situation? We call it a situation when it's so bad we don't want to explain the particulars of it. So we just tell everyone I'm going through a situation. The, the prophet went through so many of those kind of situations that he wrote about God. He's, I've learned he's beautiful for situations. And so they disrupt Jesus. And then they say to him, and remember, remember the context we stepped into it from chapter uh, uh, 7, verse 37, that this argument had been escalating all week. So as, as a checkmate move, the Pharisees have brought some poor woman who was caught in the act of adultery in and put her in front of Jesus. And they say, Moses in the law commanded that such women should be stoned. But what do you say? Now, the text said they said this 
to trap him. This was a strategic entrapment. And here's the trap. The argument in chapter 7 was, you can't be the son of God. You can't be God in the flesh um, because of what Moses said about there is one God. You, you can't be one with the father. You weren't even alive when Abraham was on the earth. And, and so there was, there was this intensity concerning the law of Moses. And so Jesus responds to that that he was the word in the beginning. He is one with the father. He was the word that wrote the law. He, he tells them before Abraham was, I am. So he says, I am to every one of their objections about the law. He's saying, I am the law. I am the 10 commandments. I am your Pentateuch. I am the commandments that Moses gave all 396 of them. I am the, and, and it, it just made them so angry. And so they're thinking he's, he's, he's backed himself in a corner because he has said publicly on the record that he is in support of the law of Moses. He's also said publicly that he came to seek and to save those which are lost. He's, he's, he's publicly known for giving grace to people, and he's even claimed to forgive sins. So I tell you what, let's put him in a spot where he, he, he has to violate one of his two values, okay? Over here, he values the law, and over here, he values grace. Let's put him in a spot where he has to violate one of them. So to make sure you understand, when they bring the woman in, and they say, Moses, law commands stoner, what do you say? If he says don't stoner, he will violate the law that he said he wrote. On the other hand, if he says stoner, he will kill her, not for being guilty, but for getting caught. Because the text would later bear out that all of the people that were dragging her to her judgment were just as guilty as she was. The only difference was she got caught and they didn't. So yes, she was guilty, but there was no justice. You can be guilty and still be robbed of justice. And that's the problem with man judging man. That's why the Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. Because when you step into a judgmental spirit and a judgmental attitude, you will destroy someone else for getting caught at what you're guilty of doing your own self. But have just previously had the grace of remaining covered. You have to lift up your covers of grace that's covering you and your mess to throw stones at another person who had the covers jerked off of them. And it's amazing that we can get so beside ourselves and lift ourselves up in so much self-righteousness and pride and yet be so blind in arrogance to the stench of our own mess that we have the nerve to judge other people. And so she's standing there, guilty as sin, and yet there's no justice. 
The Pharisees are standing there. We're going to end this argument right now. This argument has gone on too long. It's gone on for a week. We're going to end this thing right now. Tell us, stoner, and violate your whole grace thing. Or let her go and violate the law you came, you say, to, to support and enforce. And in response to this, now give me a two or three minutes because I'm going to lose a lot of you on this and it's okay. I just have to say it. It's my upbringing. In response to this, Jesus doesn't answer them. The text said he just bent down and got on the ground. Now, this, this bothers my sensibilities. Let me explain why. In our culture today, in the year we're living in today, we've lost a lot of honor. We don't really practice honor. We don't practice honor toward our leaders. Many don't practice honor towards their parents or their grandparents. Many don't practice honor toward their elders. It's kind of a lost and dying art to be a person who practices honor. But in, in ancient cultures, and even in our not-so-distant past, there used to be a time where if you had a major leader who was very significant, that, that helped his people that he would lead, it, it, it used to be that if he were walking and, and maybe... Maybe he took something out of his pocket and dropped a handkerchief or something. If he tried to bend down and get it, somebody around him, somebody serving him, somebody younger, somebody on a lower level would almost rush, dive down to the ground so that the leader himself didn't have to get on the ground. It used to be a time where, you know, if you were all at the house and and, and the patriarch, the father of the family, or the mother of the family, it, it, if, they, if they dropped something or if they had to bend over and pick something up, all the younger people would, would rush in and say, no, 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 you don't, you don't do that. You don't, you, don't get on, you don't get on the ground. No, you know. And it's not that they're too good to get on the ground. They don't mind doing it. It's the people around them would not allow that figure in the family or that leader of the organization to get on the ground. Daddy, daddy, no, 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 I can't, I can't have you on the ground, daddy. Grandpa, no, 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 I can't, no, 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 I can't, I can't have you on the ground. Somebody spills something and grandmama's bending over and getting on the ground to clean it up. You say, no, 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 grandma, I can't, I can't have you on the ground. No, I, I don't like the, no, no, baby, I'm fine going, no, no, grandma, I need you to get up off the ground. I can't, it does something to me. I can't have you. I can't have you on the ground. I know you don't understand what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a cultural thing. It's a generational thing. And some of us hadn't been raised the right way, but there was a time where they raised us to understand that if you got greatness in your presence, you don't let greatness get down on the ground. If you got somebody special that's carried you, that's blessed you, that's nursed you, that's taught you, that's trained you, that provided for you, you don't let them get on the not on the ground. And yet, Jesus, 
when they're pressing him, give us an answer. Do we stone her and violate your grace? Or do we let her go and violate your law? He doesn't give them a response because really their question is, how can a just God, who also has to be a just judge, pardon the guilty when he knows they're guilty? If you're a God of laws, then you're not a good judge if you let them go. And he, di he didn't answer it because he couldn't yet. He wouldn't answer that question until he went to the cross to reveal ultimately the way a just God could let guilty people go free. The just God would pay the penalty with his own life and his own blood. But, but, but we're not there yet, so he doesn't answer them. He just... He just gets on the ground. God. God got down on the ground. I got to thinking about it. That's what he did when he saved me. God got down on the ground. He didn't try to save us from the lofty royal diadem of heaven. He came down and got into our own mess with us, beside us. He, he got into our filthiness. He got into our squalor. He got into the mud that we were in. He, he got down on the ground. And then, and then he takes his righteous finger, his holy hand, and he sticks it in the dirt. And and he starts writing something. Nobody knows what he wrote. But it doesn't matter what he wrote. What I want you to think about is whatever they were, they were words. And whatever he was writing in the dirt started causing a pause in the anger of the mob ready to stone the woman. He, he was writing in the dirt. And it was the word he was writing, whatever it was, that caused them to pause. He saved her just like he saved us. He saved her with a word. He saved her with a word on time. And if you trace your life back, you'll find that's how God saved you. When you desperately needed it, he sent the right word at the right time, whether it was the word concerning the gospel when you first got saved or whether it was a word of instruction or a word of prophecy, whether it was a word that pulled you out of your depression or your anxiety, whether it was a word that gave you the wisdom that you needed to know what to do in the situation where you lack direction, whatever it was, all of your Christian life, you've been saved by his 
his word. And, and the woman standing there doesn't realize that no one knows what he's doing down there on the ground with his finger writing in the dirt. He was saving her with a word. He still saves his people by sending a word. It's a word in season. It's a word cut to the continuity of what you're going through. It's a word that gets in your spirit and begins to bear fruit in your life. He's just doing now what he's always done. He saving with a word. Somebody in here this morning listening to me in the building or maybe somebody watching me online, God is sending his word to do what his word does. His word saves. His word delivers. His word rescues. His word blesses. His word instructs. His word releases things that nothing else could release. It opens doors that no man could open and he's he's writing and they get they get tired of him writing and they say, hey, are you going to respond to this? We spent a week cracking up this strategy. Are you going to respond to this? And he, he, has to, he has to get up. You know, I don't like seeing it in my mind. You know, it said that, that Jesus had to straighten, had to straighten himself. You know, that, that means he's down on the ground, you know, and he has to straighten himself. So he straightens himself and he says, um, go ahead and stone her. But one, one, one thing, let the person to start the stoning. Let the person who throws the first rock be the one who doesn't have any sin. Listen at the brilliance of the master. He doesn't say don't stone her. That would have broke the law. He says go ahead and stone her. Just let it start off with the innocent among you. Now notice, he doesn't say, all of you who've never committed adultery, you can stone her. Because see, sometimes people will get high-minded on you because you didn't do what they did. But you did do something. And what we forget about God is there's no gauge of sin. There's no big sin or no little sin, no nasty sin and no cute sin. With God, sin is just sin. So he says, if you're guilty of nothing, be my guest. And the Bible teaches us something about maturity, even in the lives of these who Jesus would call brood of vipers, these religious, zealot, mean-spirited people. The Bible does teach us something about maturity because it said that they started dropping their rocks from the oldest down to the youngest. Which means it takes younger people longer to come to the realization they're not perfect. <laughs> he who is out he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And it, it, it took the youngest ones the longest amount of time to figure out, hey, wait a second, you know. 
the older ones drop their rocks first because the longer you live, the more times you have failed. The longer you live, the more you got on your rap sheet. The longer you live, you know how broken you are. The longer you live, the harder it is to deny your own idiosyncratic issues and your own inconsistencies and how you don't even live up to your own standard most of the time, much less the standard of God, how much you lie to yourself and other people. The older you get, you know, it's kind of hard to escape the fact that you're not innocent. The younger ones, they, 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 they thought about it a while, you know. Just counting up, let's see. But they dropped their rocks from the eldest to the youngest. And then they all left, you know. When people don't have a rock, they leave. When people don't have a rock, they leave. They will come to church sometimes just to be there for the judgment session. But as soon as the rock is dropped and taken away, they don't stay around church. They bounce. When the rock is gone, they leave. Some people aren't here this morning just because there's nobody to throw a rock at. And so Jesus looks at the woman. Now we all sin. Healthy amen belonged there. We all sin. The, the word sin just means to miss the mark. To, to not hit the target. To not hit what you were aimed at by God when he made you. Okay, to veer off course. Of course, that includes doing things that are wrong. Of course, that includes moral issues and failings and whatnot. We all sin. But there is no sin like the sin that you're into and you knew it was going to be a mess before you went into it and you went into it anyway. You may not know what I'm talking about. Maybe, maybe you never sinned like that. Just listen to me for a second. Like when you're, when you're planning on doing wrong and the conscious perks up and says, you know, if you get caught doing that, it's going to destroy your entire life. And you hear it and you know it. And yet you, your dumb self, you open the door anyway and... And, and the worst thing to be caught in is something you knew you weren't supposed to be in anyway. Because then there's the, there's the torture of 
of them catching you, you know. But then there's the torture you bring on yourself, saying to yourself, I told you. Have you ever done something and then looked at yourself and said, what in the world is wrong with you? What was I thinking? And that's part of the torment of sin in our lives is that what was I thinking moment. Now Jesus looks at her. They dropped the rocks. They, they left. But he's looking at someone that even though she's not going to get stoned today, she's got to go back to a life that is probably going to be blown up. Because you can't be caught in the act of adultery in front of a bunch of church people and your spouse not find out. Word was on its way to that brother from somebody. <laughs> Sister Saintly in the back, I just wanted to let you know we're praying for you. Your wife was in church today. She was? He looks at her and she's, she's got a mess to go home to. And he asks her something that's so amazing. He said, um, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Insinuating, this is heavy now, insinuating that when Jesus brings deliverance to your life, there can be a degree of deliverance he brings that even makes people take their condemnation off of you. And you may hear that and think, oh, no, my cousin, she ain't never going to change. She's going to be judgmental for the rest of her life. But, but Jesus, Jesus is revealing to her what I've just done for you in the degree that I've just done it has removed not only the condemnation from me, but the condemnation from those around you. Okay. It says, neither do I, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. I could. I would be just in doing so. But I don't want to. Getting at the heart of Jesus, he doesn't want to. He's never wanted to. In the epistle of Peter, he writes that God is not willing that any should perish, but desires all to come to repentance. He didn't want to. He says, neither do I condemn you. He says, go. And he says, the reason I picked it in the NIV was because I don't like the way the other translations say it because it's too fake. It, it seems fake. In the other translations, he says, go and sin no more. That can't be what he was saying. You can't live inside of a flesh suit in the world and, and go for the rest of your life, 20, 30, 40 years, and never commit a sin. He wasn't saying that. He's saying, leave your life of sin. 
In other words, leave the lifestyle of sin. Leave the perpetual day in, day out cycle of sin that you've been living in. And that's, and, and, and notice, notice the grace of Jesus, how it permeates the story. He doesn't say, if you'll leave your lifestyle of sin, then neither do I condemn you. No, no, no. Before he said that, he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Now go. I'm going to tell you this. Leave your lifestyle of sin. Because that lifestyle of sin, it's eventually going to put you right back here. And I may not be there to write in the dirt the next time. I'm going to be on this earth three and a half years. I got a ministry to do. I got work to do. I got a purpose to fulfill. If you don't leave that lifestyle of sin, it'll end you up right, right back here. Stand to your feet. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Three, three little things. Number one, if you're going to love anybody, if you're going to invest the time, the energy, and all that it takes to love somebody, love them with stubborn love. Okay. Number two, cut out of your life immediately any tendency to be judgmental toward other people. It makes you look so foolish when you judge others with your guilty self. Even if they didn't do what you did, you did something. Stop judging people. There's one God, there's one judge, and judgment belongs to him. And then number three, leave your lifestyle of sin. Okay, just those three little takeaway things I want you to take away from this text. Just three little things. If you're going to love anybody, love them with stubborn love. Cut out of your life any tendency to be judgmental toward other people. You look silly doing it. Number three, number three, leave. Leave the lifestyle of sin. And I'm not saying be perfect. I'm not saying you're never going to fail. I'm saying leave the perpetual cycle of it. Because it'll get you in a mess. It'll get you in front of the stones every time. Amen. Bow your heads. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that saves us. 1 Corinthians 1.21, you said you've chosen the foolishness of preaching your word to save them that believe. And Lord, we believe your word. We believe the preaching. We thank you for moving in all of the interruptions in our lives. We thank you that we are saved by the word, even through the interruptions, even through the difficulties. We're saved by the word of God. Father, I pray your blessing and your peace upon every person in this room, every person under the sound of my voice. Let your blessing, let that rich, stubborn love, let that grace that says, I don't condemn you either, just leave your lifestyle of sin. Let that fall on everyone in this house. They, 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 don't, they don't have to spin around three times or run down and do a handstand. They, they don't have to go through theatrics to receive you. Let them receive you through your word. Let them receive that instruction. Leave that perpetual lifestyle of sin behind. Don't take it into the new year. Don't take it into another stage and age of your life. Leave it behind. And Lord, we thank you for these things. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Give the Lord one more hand clap of praise. Amen. God bless you. I love you. I know you're still celebrating Christmas. So I want you to, to go and do whatever you're going to do today. I'd like to encourage you to give an offering to the Lord. I'd like to encourage you to get something in your hand to honor God being in his house. Give him something. Lord, we bless this offering. We ask you to multiply it. We ask you to cause it to go further than humanly possible to help us get the work of God done. And Lord, we ask you to bless the people who give rain on their offering and cause it to multiply in a harvest back to them. In Jesus' name we pray. God bless you. Listen, we love you. Wednesday night is the last service of the year. So if you can, be with us, be with us Wednesday night. Take New Year's Eve off. Do something with your family. Be safe. Be conscientious. And we will see you Wednesday and then next Sunday. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.